I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Okay, today we are going to go down a little road that I'm trying to piece together as to where this where this like came from. It's going to be interesting regardless, but today we're sitting down with Dr. Glenn Gare, uh, who is a professor of psychology and founding director of evolutionary studies at the State University of New York at New Paltz. And so I, I cannot for the life of me remember as to why or how the term outgroup homogeneity came up on the show. It was in one of these routine checkup episodes. And my guess is that it has something to do with, like, there was something to do with studies surrounding, I don't know, like, maybe mice and, like, maybe genders. I I have no idea. Like, somehow this term came up, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. We should talk to someone about that. But I do not remember how the fuck that came up. And now we have Glenn here. And I'm going, before the recording, I'm like, uh, uh, guys, do we remember how this came to be? And none of us remember. So, Glenn, I'm going to start. The very first question, I'm going to start. What the fuck is outgroup homogeneity? <laughs> sure. Glad, glad to answer it. Well, first off, thanks so much for having me on the show, guys. I appreciate it. Um, and outgroup homogeneity is like I always tell, so I teach um, various courses at, at SUNY New Paltz or State University of New York at New Paltz. And um, one of the main ones I teach or I'm trained in relates to social psychology. And I always tell my students, whenever you hear a fancy term, it usually means what it says. And you know, sometimes that's helpful for students. So like outgroup homogeneity, outgroup, um, the outgroup part of it pertains to the fact that people naturally quickly and universally divide the social world into themselves and others, people that are like on my team or in my group mm. or not. And, and I'd be more than glad to talk a lot um, in, in more detail about what that is. We call that the in-group, out-group bias. But mm. out-group means someone in like the group other than my own. Um, mm. So for you guys, it might be Americans. And for Americans, it might be Canadians or Europeans, um, mm. for instance. Or it might be as much as like, I'm from New York, but you know, I'm not from New England and, and don't, don't you dare mix us up because they're different than we are kind of thing. Right. So Donald Trump's campaign was all about like in-group. He's like, make America great again. Yep. We don't care about the out-group. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a lot right. of literature showing how that, um, that particular political orientation that he was pushing was, was nationalist as opposed to sort of humanitarian or, or world you know world oriented mm, and mm-hmm. um obviously it was effective in in, in getting him in, into office 
whether people think that's good or not, it's a separate issue, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah. But so the outgroup part of it, and you're right, that that particular campaign totally amplified, you know, let's beef up the in-group and, and disparage, you know, keep away the outgroup. And that was tapping into a very natural part of our psychology. And mm-hmm. the, the um, homogeneity part of it, homo just simply means same, right? Um, and geneity, gene means kind, like, like a, a gene is like you got this kind of gene or that kind of gene. So it's really like genus or genesis, like a very basic kind of thing. So homogeneity simply means the same kind. Or there's, put a, a different way, outgroup homogeneity means that people tend to think that people in quote the other group are all the same kind as mm. one another. Yeah. Um, an example I give to my students, which they connect with because they're college students, so it works for them, is I say, think about um, two groups of people, college students across the United States versus truck drivers across the United States. And I don't know how many truck drivers there are, but I'm assuming it might be a similar kind of number um, in, in terms of total numbers. And I say, now think about variability, how just how much people differ in terms of their personalities, their backgrounds, their political ideologies, their demographics, whatever you think defines a person. Mm. And which do you think, where do you think there's more variability, college students or truck drivers? And 90% of the college students say, of, not only do they say it's college students, but then they will say, of course it's college students. Now mm-hmm. I never, polled truck drivers with the same question, which would actually be a, a, an interesting thing to do at some future point. But it's it's very interesting to see that there's this like, it's really to some extent the root of prejudice, right? It's kind of like, mm. oh, they're, you know, they're different than we are and, and good golly, they're all the same. They're all 50 year old, slightly overweight Republican guys with hats um, and, and so forth. So it's it's amazing how these these things that at the end of the day can be so socially problematic and can have effects on like electing people that sort of try to create divides between people and wreak havoc on, on our social and political worlds. It's rooted in this really, really basic um, in-group, out-group psychology and a mm. funda- foundational part of that is out-group homogeneity. Okay, We're- now, after you saying all that, I have a feeling that where this came up in conversation between the three of us and a previous guest perhaps had something to do with us talking about vaccine inequity across the planet. And so like us, Canada, or, you know, you guys down in the U.S. looking at these vaccines and focusing on we need to, it's like we need the vaccines for us and fuck everybody else. Like they, uh-huh. they don't, it's, it's not necessary for them to have it. We need it. Yet in reality without everybody getting access to it, it's just going to fuck us all up. And it's so, like an our, our team versus their team. Yeah, except what we yeah. don't realize is that we're, we're actually all, one team. all on the same team. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. So, so where does that come from? So, sorry, Taylor, if you, if you want to keep on, on that, that track yeah, there. Like why, I mean, it's, we see that, you know, the political example is, the, is, is probably the, is the easiest and, and most like globally, I guess, um, um, easiest to grasp because we just see it every day played out in the news cycle of how, you know, mm. h- how we've, div- we seem to very easily divide into these teams, but you see it, in, you, you know, you see it on, you see it in, 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 uh, on like very large scales and very small scales in terms of like, you know, this is my group, this is my team, this is who I play for. And, you know, the other, everybody else outside of that is, you know, I very easily paint them with the same brush. 
from a psychological standpoint, why is it that we, like maybe from psychologically or evolutionarily, why is it so simple and easy for us to do that to people that we don't know, to paint with a, such a broad brush mm-hmm. and, and group people, um, group people together and give them all the same traits when we know, when we know that even within our own group, we have massive variation between each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very, very well articulated question, Taylor. And uh, I think I'll start responding um, in my response with an anecdote from my own experience where I, I sort of um, had, a, had a very vivid experience with that um, when I visited China a few years ago. So w- one of the things I do in, in my job is I teach a course in the summers in Chongqing, China, which is like wicked in the center of the country. A lot of people, it's the most populous city in the world, but a lot of people haven't even heard of it. Um, And I've, it's really a very cool experience. And um, this entire issue has been so fascinating to me because probably perceptions of people from Asia, that might be a really classic form of outgroup homogeneity among people that are of European descent. Um, that are living in North America. And when I first went there, like one of the first things you find is there's just as much variability in, in the people there as, you know, here. And even though we think about cultural differences and, and embracing diversity, one of the things that struck me is like, wow, they, they're, they're the same. They're exactly the same. The students have the same issues. They care about the same things. They like the same music. They wear the same stuff. Um, they try to get away with the same stuff. They're using their cell phones in class. And, and, you know, so it's, it's a lot of this, it's really fat. It was a very fascinating eye-opening experience, but one particular moment really struck me. And it was, we took a tour, I forget the name of the city, but there's a city about two or three hours away. And and it's a small city in China of about 600,000. Um, and it's, it's up in the mountains and the tour guide pointed out that this is the city that had the giant earthquake in 2008. And honestly, I had like a vague memory of that. And then I said, yeah, I kind of remember that. How many people died in that? And the answer I believe was at least 60,000 people. Holy I'm shit. like, oh shit. my God. I'm like, I barely even processed that. If that happened in the United States, if that happened in California, that would be like this traumatic thing that we would all remember in a vivid kind of way, you know, like remembering when the Twin Towers came down or something like that. And the fact that I barely could even process it is exactly like what you're talking about, Taylor, how we like paint people from the other side of the world in these broad strokes. Um, And and so totally you could see like if it's going to be something like the vaccinations, you know, we, we care so little about people that we know little about. Mm-hmm. So that's, I guess, kind of my first part to that um, as a response. But, but secondly, you, you touched on the, the term evolutionary. And I think that's really very foundational because um, I teach courses related to evolution and human behavior. And one of the most basic things that you see in people across the globe is this in-group, out-group psychology. And from an evolutionary perspective, we can think about it really in a very vivid way because under ancestral conditions, when the human mind was evolving, people evolved to live in small nomadic clans. Now that was true for 99% of human evolutionary history. We didn't start having cities where people stayed and started having groups larger than 150 
until about 10,000 years ago. So until very recently, humans always had small clans that we were, and we were surrounded by kin. We were surrounded by individuals that we saw on an everyday basis for our entire lives. And when we saw strangers, that was usually someone from a competing tribe that was competing for relatively scarce resources. Um, so in-group, out-group started out, evolved, I think, as something that was really basic to how our ancestors were able to work together with one another in their own group and survive and ultimately reproduce. And it became so entrenched that we can now um, bring about the in-group, out-group bias literally at the flip of a coin to the point mm -hmm. that in the early 70s, when people started studying this in social psychology, they would bring people into a room, they would flip a coin and you'd wear something on your shirt that said, I got heads or I got tails. And then they would give people points to, um, to allocate to others in the study. And it was like the stupidest study. People who got heads <laughs> gave more points to the people with heads and people who got tails, you know, gave to the people with tails. And that general finding has been replicated very broadly. It's like mm. literally we can turn on in-group, out-group psychology at the flip of a coin. It's, it sounds so crazy. I, I think about, um, it seems like so much of our behavioral psychology is, is like the foundation of it is like there was some evolutionary trait where that was beneficial for us to think that way. And it was helpful at that time, yeah. but evolution takes so long to catch up to the way that we live our lives now. And especially with like the speed at, and rate at which things change now, our level of, um, awareness and understanding of the universe and sort of emotional um, capacity to interact with one another. But it feels like we have these sort of like embedded um, behaviors that have, are rooted in some reason that was really beneficial, but now maybe not so much. And it seems like definitely not so much. I feel like, I mean, but it's, like, well, it maybe I'm like, wrong there. Maybe, maybe there, maybe, maybe I am wrong, but, but and, it, it feels it seems like, like definitely to our well, disadvantage. And, and it seems sure. like it's detrimental to society in a lot of ways, yeah. especially now that we have this like such a connected global society. Mm -hmm. And so is it possible for us to like gain some level of awareness of why, how these things shape and influence our interactions and sort of acknowledge them before they, you know, sure. cause harm to our relationships? Brian, I, I got to say that, it's a great question. You worded it ex extremely well. And I, um, I study this concept in, in detail with my research team, my students at, at New Paltz. Um, the main term for this is evolutionary mismatch. And mismatch exists not just in humans, but in any species where, where you take the organism away from the environment that it was evolved and adapted to exist in, and you bring it to a very novel kind of environment. When I teach this concept in China, because there's a language barrier, I came up with the simplest example, which is, did you ever have a fish when you were a little kid jump out of the fishbowl and land on your carpet? And like almost every student's had that experience, right? Well, fish I out did. of water, <laughs> you know, yeah. the fish out of water doesn't do very well because it evolved to have its entire experience in the water. Um, and human beings evolved to be in small, in small groups to not be surrounded by strangers, to eat 
to be eat as much as you could because food was rare to try to seek out foods that are high in carbohydrates and salt that would put fat on your bones because famine was common to only communicate with individuals in a face-to-face kind of manner to exercise to the point that you might walk as much as 20 miles a day with your clan and grandma and babies and all of your stuff. Our lives are so remarkably mismatched from those conditions. And there are severe physical and mental health consequences that follow. You know, people used the phrase, especially here in the United States, the obesity epidemic, right? Mm -hmm. So you think about that from like a health perspective, Um, the adverse consequences of having a high proportion of people in the nation be relatively obese. We have a lot of type two diabetes. There's all kinds of immunological things that follow. There are cardio, cardio outcomes associated with that. Um, there's no question about that whatsoever. What's ironic is that the poorest places, um, are food deserts. So the, it's easy to buy processed junk food and that stuff is tasty. We like things like McDonald's and Cheetos, whether we like to admit it or not, because it matches our evolved taste preferences. So this is, this is kind Mm -hmm. of what what Jeremy was was talking about, how basic, how important this is, is like these industries make stuff that match not what's good for us and not even what was available in our ancestral conditions, but our ancestors evolved a preference for highly for foods that were really going to put fat on your bones because those foods mm. were rare. Yeah. Those foods are now incredibly common, and the irony is they are less expensive and more accessible than natural foods and just like think about that. So so from a physical health perspective, that's one place where we see mismatch as a major problem in nations like ours. From a mental health perspective, I'll give you this. In the last 10 years or so, if you take a look at graphs of adolescent um, adolescents reporting depressive episodes, the number simply goes up. It was about 8% in the United States um, huge study done by Gene Twenge out of San Diego State University. It, the, the rate was about 8%. It's now at about 14 or 15% when you just like study American adolescents. Mm-hmm. And what goes up with that is rates of anxiety increasing concurrently at that same rate. Um, and additionally, you tend to see suicidal ideation increases at that same rate as well. And you see cyberbullying, and all those graphs map totally onto one another. What what's the common denominator? It's one of these things, mm-hmm. right? Cell phones, the the way that people are communicating with cell phones and social media, completely mismatched from face to face communication, mm-hmm. which is how our ancestors evolved to communicate. Anonymous mm-hmm. communication was not really a possibility under right. ancestral conditions. And what we know about anonymous communication is when people communicate under anonymous conditions, they're simply not as nice to one another. And there's a ton of research showing that. I will ask my students, I'll say, estimate, just write down a percentage. What percentage of your communication with other humans in the last week was um, non-face-to-face? And every single student will say more than 50%. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that mismatch issue is a major problem. And exactly like like you're saying, Brian, you were asking, is there something we can do about it? 
I recently published a book titled Positive Evolutionary Psychology, Darwin's Guide to Living a Richer Life, co-authored with Nicole Wedberg. And that entire book is trying to sort of get people to see our behavior and our psychology in this framework and to sort of open people's eyes to, to this issue. So we're, we're hoping that with books right. like that and with mm-hmm. research about that and getting it in, into the media with interviews such as mm-hmm. this, hopefully when people are more aware, then, then maybe we can sort of make positive advances in this, spite of all the mismatch that surrounds is that, us. Is that like, so when you're saying that, that, like what you just said about your book there, is that like, is that like we can almost, the, the idea that we could almost like override our, our, our evolutionary biology mm-hmm. or psychology like with our evolved, inte- like with the intelligence that we have come into, like if we can just, if we can train ourselves to, you know, almost like Pavlov's dog style, you know, every time the, every time I meet a new person and you get that, you know, you get that instinct of like, well, who's this person? What are they doing? You know, how are they different from me? How should I be, you know, uh, you know, judgmental of this person? Like that, that almost triggers like a di- a, a bell going off for you to realize that you are thinking that way, that you are coming into this interaction with a lot of kind of preconceived bias that's kind of built into you. And that is the way in which you, you start to change. Like, like is that in and of itself promoting an, like a new evolution at some, right. at some point? Like, but, but to, but to that know. point, Taylor, like that, that seems very individual, right? So like, ha, like, right. Like, cause yeah. that, cause that's not going to, that's not going to change the like collective consciousness. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that it won't. Um, so yeah. or is it because individuals it, have to yeah, change groups, yeah, right? Right, right. Groups like, are made ha- of individuals. Yeah, right. Like, is there any is there any science behind like how it can actually how we can sort sure. of shift evolution or shift the way that we're 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 it, it's, reacting to the evolution it's, of, of it's a super interesting biases? question. A- absolutely, um, and I think honestly, like I'm at a point in my career where I'm sort of hoping to try to use this science and this approach to scholarship for good. Um, the, a good example of what, of what you're talking about, Taylor, is found in like what I'd call the paleo diet um, movement. So that's that entire idea. And I know that it's gotten a little bit controversial and there's different variants of it. And sometimes if you just tell people eat natural foods, no one has a problem with that. But if you say eat a paleo diet, which is kind of the same thing, it, it comes, you know, yeah. it comes, comes with, with a whole bunch of politics and, and, and that kind of thing. But, yeah. but I'll tell you that that movement, I think, has been a reasonably successful approach at sort of using, like you're saying, our intelligence or understanding. Like we're the first organism in the history of the entire universe, as far as we know, that understands our own origins. Like that's, that's a big deal, right? We understand mm-hmm. where we came from. We're able to say, oh, we like these things. We like McDonald's, you know, we like the Big Mac, but we like that for really bad reasons and really specific (laughs) reasons. We like that because our ancestors under ancestral conditions who were running into famine, who ate that would be more likely to survive and reproduce. But the foods that they were naturally more commonly surrounded with were things like root vegetables, fresh vegetables. And meats, which actually cooking of meats goes back way over a million years, it turns out. So cook, generally speaking, cooked meats, that's what they had, right? Mm-hmm. So the paleo diet is kind of an attempt. And, and this kind of gets to that, that conversation that you were having 
about the individual level, you know, can you change an individual or can we maybe make a change at a bigger, at a bigger level? I'd love to see um, society more generally be able to step back and say, how can we address evolutionary mismatch on a larger scale? Like I said, the, the nutrition thing, I think, has been a good start, has been right. a good example. I would like to see that same kind of thing seep into um, communication technologies, into social media-based mm. technologies. Um, there's a lot of behavioral scientists working at Facebook, for instance, and those kind of places. I feel like, personally, having those people trained um, in these concepts of evolutionary mismatch. So when a new technology gets out there, instead of just how can we make the most money possible, which of course is the real bottom line that they're interested in. Also, how can we do this in a way that best matches our evolved nature? And I feel like mm -hmm. I would love to sort of help have my scholarship and the scholarship of, of colleagues of mine doing similar stuff get to the point that we're sort of raising this awareness and having maybe governmental agencies or corporations that are producing different kinds of tech, technological products have mm -hmm. some mechanism where they're like, let's now stop and think about what are the effects going to be given our evolved human nature. Because mm -hmm. when that dude came up with Facebook, he wasn't thinking about that. Yeah, right. Right. No. I mean, I saw the Facebook movie. He was first thinking about how can I look at pretty girls, right? Yeah. That was like where that initially started. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, but 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 now we now know better. We now know what social media has done to the world. And we know that it has a good side and a bad side. And and understanding it from an evolutionary perspective really forces us to step back and to think about it in terms of our common human experience so. in ter in terms of like so with the example of of you know cell phones and and um mental illness or depressive episodes in in youth um going up significantly over the last 10 20 years um and and that lack of like face-to-face -face interaction it feels like the world is i watched a video this morning on on ai and the way that uh mm -hmm. different ais and robots are going to like mm -hmm. you know um, replace different, uh, jobs and, sure. and like take out entire labor forces, but like, we're not going backwards. We're not, we're not there. It's hard to imagine a world where there's going to be, um, yeah. more face-to-face -face interaction in the future. And it also feels like, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, like evolution takes, you know, lifetimes to, yep. Yep. to actually, to, to many, to many, sure. many, many, like <clears throat> hundreds of thousands of years to take place. So, so like we're in our lifetime, we're not going to evolve to all of a Correct. sudden be able to m mentally manage, yep. um, the sort of mental illness and depressive episodes that come with this. So like how it feels, it feels like when I think about this, it feels really heavy like to think Pandora, about because like it feels like box it's, it's almost open. impossible to yeah, like absolutely. find a solution for. So how, how do we manage that? Yeah, it's a really good question. Well, I'll, I'll give you one example, one further example of the problem, but then maybe this can help us see possible solutions as well. Um, we had a talk on our campus given by a guy named Randy Nessie. Randy Nessie is now at Arizona State University, um, coined the term Darwinian medicine and Darwinian psychiatry. Um, super, he's a great speaker, super important scholar in the field. And he had been pushing, he wrote his first book on this topic in 1994, and he had been pushing for getting medical professionals to understand 
evolution. And there were some famous um, studies that were done for years showing that guess who doesn't understand evolution? Doctors. And it's kind of shocking because we think that all doctors know everything, right? That's that's (laughs) kind of the deal with doctors. But um, it was not until 2015, so I guess six years ago, that the MCAT started having questions regarding evolution. And it's really important because you can think about any physical disorder, even like a fever as an example. Like if you go to the doctor and you have a fever, what does the doctor give you? Something to reduce your fever, right? That's like curing the symptom. But then it's like, well, why does the body respond with a fever? You know, Nessie's the one who kind of steps back and says, well, what, you know, we evolved to have fevers under certain conditions. Let's stop and think about that for a minute. Maybe it ends up taking toxins that are in our body and we sweat them out in certain ways um, that our temperature gets a certain, a certain amount and then, then pathogens end up dying as a result. So instead of just like, oh, you got a symptom, let me fix it. Now here's a pill, get out of my office, right? Which, which is what modern medicine looks like in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, if doctors have a better understanding of the evolutionary framework, the evolutionary origins of where symptoms come from, they can really see these things in a bigger picture, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so there's a push toward advancing Darwinian medicine and, and getting a higher proportion of doctors to understand it. There's another field. I have a friend who studied nutritionists over, I think he might've studied over like three or 4,000 nutritionists in the United States and gave them two, two basic questions. One was how well do you understand evolution? One was how well do you think evolution is relevant to your job as a nutritionist? And generally speaking, people didn't understand it. And these are licensed nutritions in the United States. And generally speaking, you know, not every single case, but generally speaking, the answer was this doesn't have any evolution has nothing to do. Evolution is DNA and fossils. You know, it has nothing to do with 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 my work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for for decades now, I've been working with with various people, um, including David Wilson at Binghamton, who, who really came up with this idea of evolutionary studies using evolution, not just for biology and geology, but for sort of understanding the human experience in a broader sense. And I feel like advancing that kind of education for people going into a whole variety of fields can hopefully really sort of lead to a certain enlightenment where this stuff can really be used to make positive changes. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. This might be a dumb question, but I can't help but think about, um, and I, I tend to think this way about the United States um, when I think of like Republican, Democrat, um, people who like are very uh, religious and believe in God and maybe um, sort of don't so much subscribe to the idea of evolution. Um, does that pose any problems for people like caring about the impact that evolution has on 
you know, modern medicine or nutrition or things like that? That's a huge hurdle. It's a huge hurdle. Um, And it's a great question and very, very well articulated. I'll give you a a really specific um, study. The first author was Ward. This is a study that was published in the Journal of Social Evolutionary and Cultural Psychology a few years back. And they presented a bunch of findings to four groups of people, um, religious fundamentalists versus non-religious fundamentalists. And that was one two-level variable. And the other variable was whether the findings were framed as these are from evolutionary psychology researchers versus here's just some findings. And one of the findings might have been um, that men are more likely to be bothered by sexual infidelity than women are, which has been documented by evolutionary psychologists. And that was framed either as this is work from evolutionary psych or here's something, here's an interesting finding that psychologists Mm. have found. And it was so fascinating because the religious fundamentalists, and as you know, in the United States, we're talking about a very high proportion of people, religious fundamentalists, when they had no framing regarding evolutionary psych, that was the people who were most likely to say, yes, I believe those findings. But the people who were least likely to believe the findings were also the religious fundamentalists when the E word made it into the framing. Wow. Um, so you're absolutely right. And it's, it's concerning. A lot of times when I talk about this stuff, depending on my audience, instead of talking about evolutionary mismatch, I'll simply call it mismatch. Um, sometimes right. I find myself almost self-censoring so that mm. I don't say the E word and then suddenly a hundred people I'm talking to are just like, you know, forget it. I sure. that stuff. Isn't that, isn't that funny in the, like, in the irony that like, that is, that is in and of itself, like this in group out group playing, yeah. playing out that it's like, as yeah. soon as yeah. you know, you hear the, the E word, it's like, that's the group that I don't believe. Yes. Yeah. And like, yeah. and if you associate that term with the thing that you're telling me, it paints the whole, it it changes the entire context of what you're telling me. Speaking of belief, uh, I know that there's more than just, um, just in-group, out-group biases, which is something we've been focusing on for the most part here. But um, something that, that kind of pertains to and relates to a lot of some of the stuff that we've talked to over the last, talked about rather over the last, fuck, I don't know, like, really like year like since covid began is um and and we've been talking about it without even really knowing that we've been talking about it but this idea of belief perseverance um Mm. and and especially in in the context of like you know um like the science of vaccines and people people being on one of two camps one being like yes we believe the science and then the other side it's like nope it like bill gates is trying to fill us with chips um, and so can, like, can you, can you break down belief perseverance and what that means? And, and, and also like, where the fuck does that come from? Sure. Um, yeah, so that's a really, it's another very strong, um, social perceptual bias. Um, it's deeply rooted, you know, it kind of relates to what we might call cognitive dissonance or cognitive dissonance reduction. When our, when our thoughts are inconsistent with one another, we don't like that. Um, we like to like have as much consonance in our thoughts as possible. It just allows us to function better. It's hard for me to believe A and not A at the same time. It's hard for me to believe you're from the out group, but you're actually a nice guy. Like that's like we kind of evolved to sort of just like have all those ducks in a row, even if we're completely wrong. Um, 
And, and so belief perseverance is one of these things where it's, it's, it's an offshoot of that. It's like, it's so, sometimes it's so incredibly hard to change someone's mind. And we've all had that kind of experience, even when data are presented, even when numbers are presented. And one of the most unfortunate things about the COVID situation worldwide, but certainly seeing it in spades here in the United States, is it's become incredibly politicized, Mm. which is just tragic. And thousands and thousands of people have died because this thing, because Fox News presents it this way and CNN presents it this way. And if you're watching Fox News, then you can't possibly believe um, you know, mm-hmm. CNN and vice versa. I had a conversation with a very close friend the other day who I know um, watches Fox News and had a conversation about vaccinations. And this person started saying, why should we trust the CDC? And I kind of <clears throat> said something polite and said, I'm not going to get into, the, into this conversation. Um, but you know, here's why we should trust the CDC because I, and I actually posted on Facebook, this was kind of a snarky post. I looked up their webpage that had their leadership and it had maybe about 20 different people. They all had PhDs from Johns Hopkins and in epidemiology and public health, um, several medical doctors who were also PhDs studying ep- epidemiology and viruses and, and biostatisticians educated at the top places with years and years of education. And these are the leaders, you know, let alone the foot soldiers who are the scientists of the CDC working under these leaders. And I'm like, I don't know about you, but I don't think I know as much about how a virus works as these people do. You know, maybe I'm wrong, yeah. but I, I kind of don't think yeah. so. But it, and they're not elected and they don't have they don't they don't there's not the self-interest correct. angle that politicians cannot live Ab- without. Like politicians absolutely. have to have that. So like Abs- absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I saw someone sent, sent me a meme the other day. It made me laugh, but it spoke to it. It was this guy at his computer and he was talking to his, his wife who was kind of like rolling her eyes. And he said, oh, look, honey, I found something on my computer about vaccines that no scientists or medical doctors around the world seem to have found. But look, <laughs> you know, I'm like, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's, it's amazing. But, you yeah. know, the, but the anti-vaxxers, um, there's a very strong anti-vaxxers vaxxer contingent in the united states it kind of comes from a couple of different political um places and i i've seen that it's 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 hard to change their behavior in their mind and you're coming from a place where where you are because of because of what we're talking about because the topic of this whole conversation the in-group out-group like once you want the people that are surrounded that surround you in your group if you are presented with information that is going to sway the way that you feel from an individual level, now you have to try and cope with the ramifications of what that's going to have on you as an individual with the group that you're surrounded by Correct. that, that believes the thing that you no longer believe in and <laughs> the pressure that that puts on you and the stress that that puts on you of totally. how you're going to say that to the people that you're, that are in your group. What are they going to think of you? Are you going to be ostracized? Are you going, are your relationships going to suffer? Are, are the people that are closest to you going to think of you mm-hmm. differently? Mm-hmm. Like there's just all these levels to, to how it is, how, you, how it can be just the way easier decision to just continue to reinforce the thing that yes. you, that, that you believe in, even in the face of 
contrary evidence. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, related to that is, is that was really well articulated. I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, that, that like, you know, disagreeing with everyone in your group is not really the best way to become popular within the group. You <laughs> yeah. know, um, there's a, a concept called selective exposure, which totally mm. relates to what we're talking about. So people seek out information that's consistent with what they already believe or with how they already see the world. And it, there's really simple research where they'll put out like two magazines on a table um, and the headline on one might be something like, like the vaccine um, production process has, you know, been, been amazing and should be applauded. And, and another one might be, you know, this, this guy died because he got the vaccine. Here's his story kind of thing. And simply when you put someone in that room and you know their attitudes about the vaccine, we tend to, as someone who's supportive of the vaccine for a lot of reasons, I would be more likely to pick up the one that was um, evidence that the vaccines are good. And Mm -hmm. someone on the other side would be more likely to pick up the other one. And there's lots of research on a lot of different issues where we tend to see that. So we're looking, Mm -hmm. so people have data but they have data that is self-selected based on what they already believe. And, right. and that's a problem. The, these things like belief, perseverance, and, and false consensus, consensus and selective exposure, like, are, we see, are, are these types of biases that we are, that are more prevalent now than ever? Or does it just feel that way because of, because of the like political circumstances we've kind of found ourselves in within within the last yeah. whatever four and a half years. It's a great question, and I actually have some specific data that speaks to that. Usually, I, I almost feel like my common answer to that might be, you know, people are people around the world, and we've probably been like this for a long time. And I think there's a large part of that that's true. But I will tell you that there have been changes. And there's specific research by a social psychologist named Matt Motel, um, who does really awesome work on political polarization. And I'll describe, he has this incredibly vivid set of graphs that speak to exactly this issue, which show that it actually is getting worse mm. and has been getting worse um, in terms of the political divide, in terms of the in-group, out-group bias in terms of the we're right and they're wrong kind of mentality. And the way that he put it is this, he has a map of the United States in 1992 and it has every county is on there. So the outline of every county is there and there's three colors. If it's white, that means that the 1992 US presidential election was within 20 points. So whoever won, it was less than a 20 point margin. If it's red, that means that the Republican presidential candidate won by 20 or more points. If it's blue, the Democratic candidate won by 20 or more points. The graph in 1992 was about two thirds, maybe even three quarters white. So most counties in the United States were a toss up. Mm-hmm. And there were pockets of red and pockets of blue. And now, he, and then he shows it was a very powerful presentation. Um, he shows every single one since going into 2016. And what happens is the white disappears and the red grows and the blue grows and the red sort of joins each other and the blue kind of joins each other. So that idea of polarization is like, you can see it visibly and physically Mm. in these 
data. And so that means that more and more, and social media is making it even worse because more and more we're Mm. living among people who believe whatever we believe and we're on social media communicating with people who believe whatever it is that we believe. And, you know, this is the idea of an echo chamber. And I think because of the technology and because of the advances in the technology and the changes in um, those kind of political demographic situations, I think we can make the case that it actually is literally getting getting worse in a the, lot of ways. The interesting thing, though, about that, and like I'm, I'm an inherent optimist, so when I hear that, it sounds scary and it sounds sh- like super shitty that that's happening. Um, but then you, you look at this, and to, to a point that I was kind of bringing up earlier, is that, well, well, we're not evolving. Like, this isn't a change in our evolutionary psychology. This is, there's a, a lever that's being pulled or some something that's, some type of phenomenon that's happening that's causing us to go this way. So if there's something that's causing us to go this way, then there's got to be something that we can do to prevent it at the same time. And mm. I watched uh, a Netflix documentary <laughs> last night. I think it's a few years old. It's called The Great Hack. And it's about Cambridge Analytica. Oh, yeah. And it's it's like the way that data our data was used to um, um, manipulate people and their behaviors is, is really remarkable. Um, but there's now this movement um, that was sort of started by a couple of the people who were investigative jur- journalists and, mm-hmm. and uh, a professor of psychology and uh, one of the former uh, workers at uh, Cambridge Analytica, they've started this thing where they're trying to um, create uh, data. You like you own your own data, so it's all about owning your own data and having uh, choosing whether or not you want to sell it to those companies. Because right now, in privacy policies that nobody ever reads, a lot of these big tech companies are just gaining free access to our data and then selling it to companies like this. And there's not enough. Uh, uh, rules or legislation protecting us as individuals in these situations. So um, I guess all of this is to say is that like, if it's possible for us to, you know, our, our evolutionary psychology to be manipulated in this sort of like nefarious way, there has to be a way for us to also um, sort of acknowledge that that's happening and then create a sort of counter lever that allows us to, you know, come together in a big happy world. <laughs> wow. I think, I think the problem, I I, just, just, maybe from that's he, too optimistic. just from hearing you say that, I think the biggest problem with that is that there's so much money to be made in fucking with people. Mm-hmm. Totally. And, and that yeah, is, yeah. and that is like, and that is ultimately the thing that this, I mean, now we're getting into crazy, we're getting into territory that we could spend 18 hours on or more. Like, it, you know, it's just the bedrock but, dude, dude, money, making money is the bedrock of this planet. And if, you can make a whole bunch of money off of exploiting someone's evolutionary psychology. The sad thing though, is that we talked about like, do it. like, like, can there be a societal shift and like, is it enough to change as an in- individual? And, and unfortunately I think it starts at the individual level. I think, and it's like, like I, I started going to, I, I, this is your quarterly uh, update from me that you, oh, if you're Brian, listening to this, you're not going to want to use it now because the next episode we record later today is all about uh, mental fitness. Uh-oh. Hey, whatever. I'm just saying, go to therapy because I started <laughs> okay, going to therapy and uh, and it's like the best thing in the world. I've, anyway, I'll I've just sort leave of, it at that. I've sort now. of just changed my mind a little bit on what you just said because I used to think the, a similar thing about um, a similar thing about uh, um, uh, like fossil fuel emissions and like basically that. You know, we're never going to get rid of that shit because it makes too much money 
And now, and now over the last year and into the next 10 years, it seems like we are going to make some really big headway mm. in making green energy a really profitable business mm. and moving away from, from, so, so now I see that your argument, like, can we find a similar sort of like usurping yeah. uh, thing that will promote positive, the positive psychological aspect of technology and data? Somebody, somebody, rather will, than, idea. somebody will innovate it because um, it may, yeah. I, I also started watching the last blockbuster. Has anybody seen that documentary? Mm-hmm. Really Literally, interesting. Yeah. Because, About you know, the last blockbuster store. Yeah, yeah. And it starts off with um, like, like uh, m- movie rentals. And so when they first put, um, uh, films onto VHS cassettes. Do you know how much they were selling the the um, production companies were selling those movies for the VHSs? Oh, twenty five bucks in the eighties. They were trying to sell them for a hundred dollars. Wow! So they said they said it costs seven dollars to go to the theater. You know, if you buy this VHS and you get like ten of your buddies to come over and watch mm-hmm. it, you've basically already you yeah. know paid it off. Sure. But then what happened is. People people couldn't afford to buy those movies, and they weren't coordinated enough to bring their friends over and watch Plus them. It's like four hundred dollars so, in today's money. So what they did was um, people started buying them up and then renting them, and so then the uh, then the production companies started selling them for like a dollar a piece mm. because they were like, though, well, this is no longer like our main source of revenue, and and then more and more um, rental stores came up, and then <clears throat> and then that sort of like innovated the entire. Really movie industry, right? So, like, I believe that there will be somebody who innovates around, you know, personal data and the way that we're being manipulated now. That will be financially in or someone's food, interest. Or food chains and food mm-hmm. chains uh, yeah. in a number of different areas, I, and it'll, it'll. I, I'm just inherently so, optimistic. Guys. Okay, then, then on that point, then Brian, <laughs> that. to to wrap to wrap this up, um, uh, Glenn, where do you sit? Are you are you uh, are you optimistic about our future as as humans when it comes sure. to these psychological biases, or are you a little bit more on the nihilistic side of things? You know, uh, uh, people who know me well, I think would would say that I'm probably in Brian's camp, like slightly more optimistic than might be best in my best interest, and I honestly think that's not a bad way to float. Um, so, getting back to this this topic about do we, the collective people, have the capacity to actually move the needle and, and push back and actually make changes regarding some of these things? I'll give you one quick um, summary of a really interesting angle on our evolved psychology. It comes from Bingham and Souza, who are at, professors at Stony Brook University. And they have this fascinating theory that the core thing about human uniqueness, like what's really cool about us and what no other primate ever did and why we started building large groups of us, um, even if we're not related to each other. What started was two things co-evolved at about the same time. One of them was, and it's going to sound silly, but our our ability to accurately throw. That if you watch a chimpanzee, which has 98% the same DNA that we have, throw a stick, they look like a two-year-old kid. They can't do it. And there's, he shows in Paul Bingham shows videos of this to make his point. But if you take a look at a pitcher in the major leagues, it's unbelievable. Right. And probably, you know, we could throw way better than every, any, even if we're not great at it, the four of us, we could probably throw better than any, any chimpanzee on the planet. Mm -hmm. Um, And at about the same time that the ability and our body, our musculature, our feet, like there's all, he points to all these different things about us that evolved 
for elite throwing. At about the same time, people started to form coalitions that crossed kin boundaries. So unlike Neanderthals, um, where their groups, we know this based on, on their um, fossil record, when we see a, a group of Neanderthals, they were pretty much all related to each other. Not true with ancestrally modern humans. Ancestrally modern humans, we started befriending and forming coalitions with non-kin a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And if you get a group of buddies and you can all pick up rocks, suddenly it's not the one big dominant male who can boss everyone around. And so Bingham and Sousa use this as like human beings evolved to have power exerted among groups of people, coordinated. Um, the little man can win. Mm -hmm. And, you know, democracy itself is almost an offshoot of that ability, right? Because in mm -hmm. so many, in so many other primate species, it's the dominant male. And in lots of other mammals, it's the dominant male, and everyone else is kind of screwed. But in humans, while it sometimes works that way, it does not have to work that way. We evolve to have the capacity to have power and resources distributed in a more even, fair kind of way. And we can use that collective ability that is an important part of our evolutionary heritage to make change regarding the future of the climate. And I would argue to make change regarding all these things we've been talking about mm -hmm. today. So I'm gonna say in answer to your question, Jeremy, I'm in the optimistic camp and I think there's some evolutionary scholarship supporting that perspective. Amazing. Boom. Well said. Well, yeah, great okay. place to uh, wrap that up. Dr. Glenn Gare, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down with us and, uh, and to go into the world of psychological biases. This really did mean a lot. Uh, yeah, I really thanks. appreciate it. Great meeting you guys. Thanks so much. That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, make sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is a Snack Labs production. It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin. And Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.